0: Well, everyone welcome back to another episode of the ClioCast. my name is matt and i'm rc anyway uh we took a unannounced break for thanksgiving um, probably should have told you guys about that but we're not great planners over here
1: i mean yeah it's not like thanksgiving like sneaks up on you you know no. i mean it snuck up on us but like yeah. it was on this calendar and then it arrives and it's like, oh shoot! Uh, I don't really want to record because it's Thanksgiving.
0: Yeah, it's almost like uh, we know what days we record these on, and doing it a day before a national holiday, where I had to travel and uh, you had to do like actual like family things between you and your fiance. It was just like it just wasn't logistically making sense, even though we could have done an episode early in the week. But you know,
1: I don't know if traveling for Thanksgiving is. And I'm going to say worse as in like the worst kind of first world problems of, oh, no, I had to hang out with both mine and my fiance's family on the same day. But like, I don't know what would be what's more stressful, just like driving somewhere or just having to balance both those and make sure that nobody gets mad at you for like ducking out right after Thanksgiving at like 2 p.m.
0: Okay, if if, if people if they get mad at you, that's ridiculous.
1: They never do. I just always feel like they're going to because it's like, all right, that was a great dinner. Now, bye. I also didn't eat that much because I got to go eat my parents' food now.
0: It's, I don't know. It it could be worse. You could be driving X amount of hours to an undisclosed city to uh, spend the time with people uh, that you can't drive to your parents' house afterwards. And you just kind of have to spend a long weekend hanging out with your partner's family yeah and, and, and the, I, I mean they actually sounded pretty like down on them they're awesome they they rock it's just
1: they they also listen to this podcast
0: yeah they do okay <laughs> uh but in you know it, it's hard when it's just like man we just can't flip back and forth unless we are driving x amount of hours in between that and that's not logistically possible either yeah so maybe i just need to get a place that can host everyone for thanksgiving
1: i feel like that's the best way to do it is like the griswold style just not everyone come over here we're in like a centralized location because my sister does that where for thanksgiving she goes to uh ohio and then for christmas she just stays here which seems like a fair split
0: yeah I don't know, but it's also been pretty similar to that for most of my life because most of my extended family lives in the New York City area. So there was always been like you know my grandparents when they were still alive, they'd have like a big Thanksgiving and everyone, all my uncles and aunts would be there, and then we're just kind of chilling in Kansas City and be like that. That looks awesome. That like most of my family is all in one room and it's just my siblings, my parents, and I eating kfc watching the simpsons in the
1: basement yeah yeah anyways that was happy this is the thanksgiving episode like a week after thanksgiving happy thanksgiving everybody yeah i
0: hope you had a good break uh if you were listening to a podcast on a wednesday before thanksgiving what's wrong with you um i didn't listen to a podcast on wednesday of thanksgiving
1: i did i was i had to work a half day so i was listening to a podcast Uh oh I found a new podcast. It's it's the space above us. I'll plug it. It's cool. He does. Uh, if you listen to our space shuttle episodes, he basically does that, but um, better because he still releases episodes. Oh, you mean he didn't <laughs>
0: stop with the halfway written script and we just kept on talking about releasing the episode and we've never actually worked on the script.
1: Yeah. Well, he. I don't know. He's just. They're good stuff. They're good stuff.
0: Yeah, but. On the continuing drama with the uh, Royals and Chiefs, oh. uh, I think you sent me this tweet talking about a uh, how the organizations are frustrated with Jackson County.
1: Yeah. They might not go to Jackson County. They might go to Wyandotte or maybe even like Clay. Probably not Cass County.
0: <laughs> Clay County would make sense. Mm-hmm. Wildcard, though. Platt County.
1: Yeah. I think I saw that
0: in the article. For those who are not familiar with Kansas City, um, Jackson County is the county where most of Kansas City is in. Clay County is the county just north of Kansas City or just north of like actual downtown Kansas City, which has North Kansas City, most of the Northland. And Platt County is the county that has the airport. Now, on the Kansas side, there's Wyandotte County, which is a the place where Sporting Kansas City plays.
1: It's Kansas City, Kansas. Kansas
0: City, Kansas is there. Sporting Kansas City plays over there. There's a big outlet mall. Uh, There's the Speedway, if you like NASCAR.
1: It's also where Schlitterbahn, the one that killed the kid, used to be.
0: Yeah, Verruckt. Yeah. Man, I'm excited for the uh, podcast that won't be named episode on that. It's coming down the pike, hopefully sometime soon.
1: I don't think they're ever going to release it. I think they mentioned it once two years ago, and they have zero intention of doing it now.
0: Man. But, and then right below Wyandotte County is uh, Johnson County, which is just full of suburbs. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, and then there's,
1: I, I think I think what I, the only counties that financially can potentially fund a stadium are maybe Clay, Jackson, Wyandotte, and Johnson. With Jackson and Johnson obviously being the two most like affluent, budgetary wise. So I feel like, like realistically, like a Clay County option is not really going to happen unless like it's a partnership with Jackson County, just because that would like nuke their budget if they had to finance that. Because obviously the billionaire owner is not going to actually pay for it out of pocket. You know, the county is going to be fronting most of that.
0: Yeah. But it's just it's wild that... uh this is even like as big of a drama as it is. I mean, if you have billionaire owners, I feel like if you're a billionaire, you should be able to pay for most of your stadium.
1: well even sin it's like, if the county's paying for the property, why does the, and, I, and this is something I've never gotten just from a, it making no sense standpoint to me where it's like, like Kemper Arena, I think the the county owns that, right? Mm-hmm. It's not like a private, whatever. Same with like the T-Mobile Arena, I'm pretty sure the county pretty much owns that. I don't know why when we pay for the majority of something like a Kauffman Stadium, like John Sherman then gets to own that as if he paid for most of it, right? Yeah, because that's like what happened with like I, I mean, the Jerry Dome down in Arlington, Texas might not be a good example because I think he actually Jerry Jones actually did pay for most of that. But that as an example, you know, I the mean, city it, pays. It, for it's it. referred to
0: the Jerry Dome for yeah. a reason.
1: Yeah, but but that, that that's the point is it's just like okay, you get like billions and billions of dollars, but also the city gets nothing but like some tax revenue out of it. Like they don't get to own that. And it's like, if you're, if you're going to be taking all these gigantic amounts of money, I feel like the county should just flex that. Well, okay, well, we're going to own You know, we get 95% of the ticket revenues or something like that. Yeah. We're paying for 95% of the stadium, at least until it's paid off. I don't know.
0: Anyway, that that's, what, we got seven minutes of sports and Thanksgiving talk. Uh, this is your first episode in me at this far. Congratulations. It's about to get good. Yeah, they because- can comment.
1: Like and subscribe. Yeah. Uh, hit us up on Zillow.com.
0: Yeah. Find out where we live on Zillow. See how much our homes cost and how much our landlords are like buying.
1: They should have like a letterbox to put for like like those home ownership maps, like Zillow, like a letterbox, but you get to leave reviews of houses you've been to. Think about that. I think about that. <laughs> I I don't know what to think about that. Yeah, you just you go into a house, you go into a building and then you get to leave like a like a Zillow review of like yeah, this was like just architecturally or whatever. This, this one is like a 4 star, I think, cuz you know the walls were painted green.
0: But okay, speaking of walls painted green, like I would leave that review on your parents' house. And what they would know that that was my review because not, not a lot of people are going in there. Yeah,
1: that's the fun part. Is it, that? It,
0: it's just like, wait, wait, why did a guy like who's named a Matt review claiming that this thing is bad in my house?
1: Well, wow, we uh we had friend like friends giving the other day, and some guy you know Jim left a review of our house the day after, huh? <laughs> wow, uh, just gotta think about it.
0: Anyway, hard transition to what we were gonna talk about. Um, We are going to do a breakdown of some Kansas City mob connections. Uh, this is from the Mob Museum. Uh, this is basically highlighting uh, uh, the mob in pop culture, the Kansas City Connection. Film Festival highlights mob roles in Las Vegas skim. Uh, this was pub- published December 26, 2018 by Larry Henry, contributing writer. And here we go. In the 1995 movie Casino, the mob's control of skimming at Vegas casinos is exposed when authorities learn about it from surveillance microphones in a Kansas City grocery store. That's not exactly how it happened. In reality, the bug was planted in a dinner table with bench seats in a now-demolished Kansas City pizzeria, Villa Capri, hoping to learn about late 1970s warring mob factions in this Missouri city on the Kansas border. Authorities instead uncovered a bombshell. Kansas City's Sevilla crime family illegally controlled the money pipeline originating from inside the Las Vegas Strip's Tropicana Hotel Casino blurry into the background at the pizzeria. Adding an iconic soundtrack to this underworld setting in a town ripped by targeted mob explosions and shooting deaths was the Bee Gees disco song Staying Alive. In time, authorities discovered that tens of thousands of dollars in untaxed gambling revenue, the skim unlawfully made its way monthly from Las Vegas Casinos to the Sevilis and other mob organizations in the Midwest. As a result, mob operatives from Kansas City, Chicago, and elsewhere were imprisoned and later court convictions. These milestones in mob history took center stage at the two-day Kansas City Mafia Film Festival over Thanksgiving weekend. Hey, Thanksgiving weekend in connection?
1: 2018. We planned
0: this out. Yeah, it's totally not like we just Googled this. Um, Shut up. In the uh, MTH Theater at Crown Center, featuring a documentary of films, Gangland Wire by Gary Jenkins, Black Hand, Straw Man, The History of Organized Crime in Kansas City by Terrence M. O'Malley, and at the November 28th screening, retired FBI agent William Osley, joined filmmakers in a question-and-answer session before the capacity crowd. The Crown Center is near a historic train station where, in June 1933, four law enforcement officers were killed in an unsuccessful attempt by Charles Arthur Pretty Boy Floyd and other outlaws to free friend being transported to the Leavenworth Federal Penitentiary in Kansas. The prisoner, Frank Jelly Nash, captured in Hosbury, Arkansas, was also killed at Union Station in what would become known as the Kansas City Massacre. We did Mob Stories number two on that there one. There you go. That's the connection. Yeah. do it,
1: it's weird seeing it written out as the Crown Center rather than yeah. just Crown Center.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, featured on here um, is, is, on this article is a uh, very 70s-looking Kansas City suburban home, um, which is captioned with Kansas City Mafia boss Nick Sevilla, lived in this house in a subdivision one's described as the mob neighborhood courtesy of Larry Henry. I am curious on what their mob neighborhood in Kansas City even is.
1: It looks like, like 30 different places I've seen in Lamaxa. Yeah, it it it
0: looks. It, it could be the Northland. It could be Leewood, I cannot tell.
1: Oh my god. I scrolled down to a picture of Nick Sevilla and he looks exactly like Junior Soprano from The Sopranos. Yeah. Oh my god. It's almost like they, you know, that, anyways,
0: yeah. The Depression era shootout, while important in understanding Kansas City's lawlessness in those days, was only a backdrop, not the focus of the film festival. The city's mob history is what the festival highlighted. As was clear by the event, Villa Capri is not the only place in Kansas City of importance to mob historians. The town is significant, has significant mob sites, including a former underworld hangout called The Trap and a residential area once known as the Mob Neighborhood. It was in Kansas City, after all, the notorious Pendergast political machine... Entangled with the city's early organized crime figures, controlled public officials while manipulating the election process from the Jackson County Democratic Club on Main Street. Among other things, the corrupt machine also elevated a failed Kansas City haberdasher named Henry Truman to statewide office, paving his way in the mid-1940s to the U.S. presidency. During the early Pendergast era, uh, the police department was under machine control. Kansas City became a heartland decadent home of jazz-age gambling dens, brothels, and all-night taverns. Pendergast machine leaders and mobsters benefited from the cash flow generated by the unchecked vice. The city's ravenous ways made national news when in 1950, inside the Democratic headquarters, near a giant picture of Truman, two local mob figures were slain in a high-profile bloody shooting. This double homicide created a major stir, according to Anthony DiStefano.
1: I'm just imagining the Citizen Kane... You know, like vote, Citizen, him, but you know that that that's the scene I'm picturing in my mind where he's giving the speech in front of the giant picture. Have you ever seen Citizen
0: Kane? Yes, I've seen Citizen okay, Kane.
1: Okay, I just I seem to remember that you hadn't for some reason. Oh
0: no! Also, you were looking at me weird. I I was trying to remember the scene in Citizen Kane and I was visualizing it in my head. Open quote. The outcry over the killings reverberated in Washington DC, which had just begun to grapple with the problems of organized crime, end quote DeStefano Stefano writes in two thousand eighteen book, Top Hoodlum, Frank Costello, Prime Minister of the Mafia.
1: Soon like Frank of like Frank and Abbott Costello? Was Frank mister Costello in the mob? I, I don't
0: know. Oh. I I don't know who Frank Costello is.
1: Or am I? Is Abba Costello a completely different person that was not part of a duo? Yeah,
0: no, it, it, it's a crime boss.
1: Oh, is Abba Costello like his cousin or something? Uh, I don't think so. Okay, anyways. <laughs> <laughs> I, well.
0: Soon, Senator Estes Kefalor of Democrat of Tennessee launched a congressional investigation into the organized crime with hearings in cities across the country while Keneffer's anti-crime efforts succeeded in drawing attention to the mob years past before Kansas City Mafia family was hobbled beginning in a part with that June 1978 surveillance audio inside the Villa Capri Pizzeria
1: it's Abbott and Costello it's not a guy named Abbott Costello he does the the, who's on third bit so I thought that was important enough to interrupt you yes
0: all right. <laughs> uh, another key mafia site from that year is a residence known as the Marlowe House, located north of downtown, across the Missouri River in quiet neighborhood, with weathered wooden privacy fences. A single-story residence that once belonged to jo- Jofacine Marlowe, a Sevilla relative. It was there in November 1978 that the Tropicana's Carl Thomas, then-respected member of the Las Vegas business community, explained to local mobsters how skimming operations worked inside the Nevada casinos. He even boasted about some of the skimming exploits. Joining him in the Marlowe house that day was another mob insider from the Tropicana, Joseph Agosto. What none of them knew is that the authorities had bugged the home were recording the profanity lace explanations that Thomas gave to the Sevilla crime lords in attendance. Among them was Nick Sevilla, head of the organization, who lived nearby in a large corner house with a sloping lawn. The meeting was held in the Marlowe house because Sevilla thought his residence would draw too much law, attend- law enforcement attention. Sevilla had been in Appalachian, New York, for a infamous 1957 mob summit that later included in was included in Nevada's Black Book, barring him from entering casinos across the state. A transcript of the Marlowe House audio was included in Jenkins' 2016 book, Leaving is a true story of how FBI wiretaps ended mob domination of Las Vegas casinos. On the audio, Thomas is heard talking about how much money is easily removed from the casinos and how important it is to have a person under your control working on the inside. Open quote, you skim off 40,000 in a week in dollars, then you grab the 40,000 C notes, and nobody knows that. Thomas Toll tells the mobsters. Open quote, the guy that reads the scales is your guy. You got to have your guy reading the scales. I bought one of them myself. The scale cost me 15,000, but my guy reads it. End quote.
1: I didn't know that, like, I, see, I, you know, you always hear about the mob owning, you know, Vegas or whatever, mm-hmm. and Frank Snatchers working them or whatever. Didn't realize they were, like, just doing, like, this. I thought that it was, like, they just owned the casinos. I didn't realize that they were just basically, like, robbing the casinos the entire time. Probably under threat of violence is my guess.
0: Yeah, also weird that, like, a house in the Northland was basically <laughs> where all of this was going down.
1: I, I guess. I guess that's one area where The Sopranos just kind of has it right, where it's like, you know, this... This mo- I've been watching The Sopranos, dear listener. If you wonder why I keep bringing it up, <laughs> uh, but just like just some random New Jersey suburban house is running this entire like mafia enterprise, and it's like, well, looking at the actual history, it seems pretty accurate. It's just some random house in like you know, the Northland or
0: whatever. Yeah, yeah. I think they mentioned just north of Kansas City. Yeah, Thomas, who later regretted talking so much that day, was convicted of skimming, but became a government witness in another trial and was released early from prison, ultimately died in 1993 at the age of sixty in a single vehicle rollover in Oregon. A decade later, Ostello died of a heart attack at age sixty one. All the civil leadership at the Marlowe House that day have also died. Over time, the public understanding of Kansas City's role in American organized crime has grown, with offers in filmmakers such as at this recent film festival in 2018, providing detailed insights. Jenkins, an attorney and former detective in the Kansas City Police Department Intelligence Unit, now operates the Gangland Wire website, which includes actual surveillance audio from those days. For the role in helping topple the Sevilla crime family, Jenkins was even mentioned by name in Nicholas Parghetti's 1995 book Casino, Love and Honor in Las Vegas, which was the basis for the Scorsese movie. That is not to say everyone understands Kansas City's importance or even the location. One day before the film festival began, New York based Vogue magazine published a general travel guide on its website, which the writer Mari, Marley Morris conceded she didn't know where Missouri, <laughs> where Missouri is. Dude, I hate New Yorkers. <laughs> I hate them so much. Where. <laughs>
1: Oh, the next line is better because she notes that she thought Missouri was quote one of those states jammed shoulder to shoulder below the Mason Dixon line like Georgia and Alabama. It's like I guess I I get I get that I guess having been the Missouri, but like no, you're like a couple hundred miles off there, bud.
0: I imagined uh, this is more. I imagined the flight path to Kansas City International roughly following that of Raleigh Durham. She writes, <laughs> suggesting that I think I had my destination confused with Mississippi jeez oh, did you you wrote that
1: down? Imagine bringing like a swimsuit going like yeah I'm gonna go you know drive down to the Gulf while I'm there and you know go swimming in the ocean
0: well like i why do you write that you you sound like an idiot I write for Vogue magazine, and here's me explaining
1: how I don't know where one of the states is that you learn in elementary school because <laughs> I'm from New York and I'm above that. <laughs>
0: Those interested in mafia history are a lot more familiar with the city among this group. There's an expectation that Kansas City will continue to attract interest from historians studying Midwest mobs' influence over Las Vegas and the years before corporate control of Las Vegas hotel casinos and a series of criminal convictions that pushed the mob out of the Silver State. For the most part, the mob has been eliminated from Kansas City, as Osley notes in 2011 nonfiction book, Mobsters and Our Myths, the Kansas City Crime Family. The criminal syndicate that had a negative impact on the life of Kansas City ended with the Sevilla era. There are those who sought to perpetuate the organization, but they found the climate and conditions no longer favorable, Worsley writes. The Sevilla power bases, political influence, union influence, monopoly on gambling operations, and others made the outfit what it was, are gone. Mostly a former FBI organized crime squad supervisor in Kansas City, also wrote in 2008's Open City, True Story of a Casey Crime Family in 1900-1950. During the heyday before Nick Savillo's death from cancer in 1983, the Kansas City Mafia was active fixture in the American criminal scene, as O'Malley notes in Black Hand, Straw Man, a 2011 comparison book and his documentary film. Several years, O'Malley, a Kansas City attorney, appeared on an episode of Anthony Bourdain's No Reservations discussing Kansas City's mob history and Travel Channel's website where the episode was posted. Kansas City described as the barbecue capital of the world. O'Malley and Bourdain are filmed inside one of the town's notable barbecue restaurants, B.B. sign Barbecue. One
1: second. I'm going to look. Villa Capri.
0: That's in Overland Park.
1: Wait, yeah, it... It looks like it's an Overland Park.
0: Well, no, the old location is in, uh, somewhere in Kansas City.
1: It said that it's, it's, this thing says it's been in Overland Park for over 60 years. Uh, the oldest continually operating restaurant in Johnson County was originally inspired by Frank Sinatra's Villa Capri, uh, 1961 Tonys Villa Capri. Uh, is this like the Villa Capri, or is this just another Italian restaurant named Villa Capri named in Villa Overland Capri Park? That also, is in the exact same. American well,
0: where, what was the address of Villa Capri in Overland Park? See if it looks similar in the. Uh... 81st and
1: Metcalf. All
0: right, let's go to 81st and Metcalf on the. Uh...
1: Well, okay, okay, okay. It said it's relocating. So where was it previously? Eighty first yeah. Uh the original location is at eighty one twenty six Floyd Street, which sounds more like it. Um yeah, this is no different than our other Casey Mob stories episode where uh um you know.
0: where we're just doing Google maps even though we still have an article to do yeah that that doesn't that doesn't look like the picture though so it must have been a different villa capri
1: are you sure because i think that's a overland park like streetlight sign isn't it on there that might be different i will say i have been to this location we're looking at on google maps before before it got completely redeveloped yeah probably been past that Eh, Man, this is a-
0: weird to go down in that cap in two thousand nine. All right, um uh, yeah,
1: there used to be a windstead's over Let's days.
0: finish the article. Um, we're
1: pretty much done with it.
0: A single sentence in O'Malley's uh, companion book sums up what the television episode also addressed. Kennedy's is mob's former prominence. When asked to speak about the subject of organized crime, O'Malley writes, I often tell audiences whether Kennedy likes it or not, better or worse, it had one of the best mafias in the United States. And then here's a breakdown of the uh, writer. Uh, Larry Henry is a veteran print and broadcast journalist. He served as the press secretary for the Nevada governor, Bill Miller. He's a political editor for the Las Vegas Sun. Uh, managing editor of KSFM TV, a CBS affiliate in Northern Arkansas. Harry taught journalism at the Haas Hall Academy in Bentonville, Arkansas, and is now the headmaster at the school's campus in Roger, Arkansas. The Mob and Pop Culture blog appears monthly. This is from the Mob Museum. Um,
1: is that the one in D.C.?
0: No, I think this is the one in... Is this the one in D.C.? Or is this in the one in Las Vegas?
1: Is there one in Las Vegas? I, I
0: think it's in... Well, I, I'm not going to speak on it, but... Uh,
1: um, wow, it is... Maybe
0: scroll all the way to the bottom and see what the address says in the bottom. Yeah, Vegas. Yeah, okay. it's in Vegas. All right, cool. I was too afraid of being wrong.
1: Why are you afraid of being
0: wrong? I don't know.
1: You know, it is impossible to figure out where the location is uh, in a reasonable amount of time for a live recording of a podcast.
0: Wait, the bullet points are up there. Scroll up. Villa Capri, Independence Avenue, mentioned in our story below.
1: Independence Avenue? Okay, so it was on Independence Avenue. Yeah. And then his son opened one in Overland Park. So the one on Overland Park, uh, which does not exist at all anymore because the area got completely redeveloped. I think it's a uh I think it's a Greek restaurant now, actually.
0: Well, Mr. Yours is down the street actually. Uh and yeah, you know I like know the Greek block. restaurant you're talking there's
1: a, about. There's a Mexican joint right there too, isn't there?
0: Well Mirangito's a bit over. No, not Mirangito. It's not Mirangito, it's a different it's one. A
1: different one. Okay, it, it, Okay. anyways, anyways, uh, uh, and then there's like a little adjoinder to that. We had um,
0: a KCUR article about the five little-known historic mob locations in Kansas City by Gina Kaufman, Sevilla, Maria Gross, Matthew Long Middleton. Um, you want to take
1: this one? I could take this one. So this article is from April 22nd, 2015, so even older. Yeah. Uh, and it goes, many Kansas Cityans have heard of the Union Station Massacre or the River Quay Explosion.
0: We've done both of those in the past two KC Mob <laughs> yeah. episodes. Give them a listen. Just
1: check those out. Uh, two of the more infamous episodes in KC's mobster history. But what about the lesser known mob landmarks? Gary Jenkins, from the previous article, a retired KC Mob police officer, created a new app that reveals the history behind all those spots. He talked to Central Standards, Gina Coffin, about a Kansas City Mob tour. And then it says, Here are Jenkins' lists of the five little known historic mob locations around town. So you got the Last Chance Saloon, which is located near State Line Road and Southwest Boulevard, where the Quick Trip now stands. They misspelled Quick Trip in the KCU article. Yeah. Um, the Last Chance Saloon was run by a mobster named Golding in the 1950s before there were zoning laws. Half of the club was on the Missouri side, and the other half was on the Kansas side. Legend states that when the cops would show up to the saloon, all the staff and patrons would simply walk over to the other side of the <laughs> saloon and therefore cross the <laughs> line, thereby avoiding prosecution. <laughs> I, I, I've heard about this place. I've heard that urban legend before because when uh, I think weed got legalized <laughs> and gambling got legalized, somebody was saying they should. Do that kind of setup here. So it's <laughs> like, oh, when the Kansas cops show up, y'all just walk over with your joints to the Missouri side, and then when the Missouri cops show up, you walk over with your betting ticket to the Kansas side. <laughs> <laughs> what are you gonna do? Okay. Right. So next, you got the First Ward Democratic Club. It stood at the corner of Truman and Charlotte, which is currently a parking lot. Uh, on April 5th, 1950, the two Charlies, Charlie Benaggio and his underboss Charles Mad Dog. Gargoda, left the Last Chance Saloon to meet some mob associates at another mob-run an establishment, the First Ward Democratic Club. They told other mobsters that the Last Chance Saloon they would return in a few minutes. They never did. The next morning, employees of the First Ward Democratic Club found the bodies of the two Charlies in a pool of blood. Strangely, their bodies were lying below a large poster of Smiling Harry Truman. The crime remains unsolved. Okay, that's just from the article, yeah. so that one's just you repetition of what we've already covered earlier so 1423 Baltimore in the 1950s the building was home to the downtown Bridge Club Bridge was not played there illegal gambling was it was a it was a notorious mobster hotspot run by Nick Savella who would later go on to be a mob boss who we've also heard about. Mm So then we got the Coates House Hotel, now Quality Hill Apartments, located on the southeast corner of 10th Broadway. The Coates House Hotel was a hot spot of mob activities in the 1940s and 50s. There was a convenience store that sold newspapers, tobacco, bubblegum, etc. out of the first floor lobby that was a front for mob activities. Uh, you know, we don't, we just don't have it like that anymore. No. That kind of mixed-use development is just illegal at most. Have your mob front bubblegum stand at the front lobby. <laughs> They got Talman's Grill, now the popular jazz club, The Phoenix, located at 8th and Central. Talman's Grill was the place to eat for mobsters in the 1930s and 40s. It was also where mobsters would get their race results. Okay. Uh, And then they have other interesting locations like The Trap or the Northview Social Club at 5th and Troost, which was like a card room for the mob guys. Villa Capri, which we've talked about a lot. You know, that's the pizza place from Casino where they skimming stuff that we... Talked about the, for the entire episode pretty much. Yeah. Uh, the Virginia Inn at the quarter of Admiral in Virginia. Buildings gone, but that's where three masked men entered the tavern and shot the Spiro brothers. Uh, the Park Central apartment of 300 East Armor is where mob boss Johnny Lazio was killed in the 1930s. Nice. Thank you, Gina Kaufman, Sylvia Maria Gross, and Matthew Long Middleton for writing this article uh, eight years ago. Um,
0: well,. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Um, I feel like this is all we have for today. Uh, if you want to hear more Casey Mob stuff, uh, we can dig deeper. We also need to figure out where that house is from that Mob Connections thing, because I'm really curious on its actual address. I'm curious. I'm sure it's a parking lot now. But... Yeah. Uh, but we'll do that on our own time and not on the episode. So uh, this has been another episode of CleoCast. I've been Matt. And I have been RC. You can follow us on Twitter at ClioHistory. You can email us at cleohistorypodcast at gmail.com. Uh, we're available wherever you get podcasts. Uh, if you want to, you can give this a share or a like on Twitter or whatever. That really helps us out with algorithm stuff and whatever reviews you can give. That'd be awesome. Thank you, and uh, have a great week. See ya.